For those of you who left your childhood hometown, do you remember how it felt to go back that first time or maybe during some of those earliest times when you went home after being away for some time, after learning new things, being uh, exploring and having your horizons expanded and exploring new and different things while being away from your hometown? Do you remember what those earliest visits felt like? I moved around several times as a kid, all within the state of Florida. I know some of you have spent nearly your entire life here in the Austin area. That was not my reality as a kid. We moved around several times because of my dad's job with State Farm Insurance, although my dad would say that we had to keep moving because he was running from the law. <laughs> I, I can hear some of you going, oh, Jay. I did get to spend all of my middle and high school years in one place in Satellite Beach, Florida, which was an incredible gift to both me and my younger sister. And when I look back and reflect back upon those years of middle school and high school in that small beach community, one of the biggest things I think about straight away is my experience on a dance team. I was on a dance team in middle school. I was on a dance team in high school. It was a, a big part of how I spent my time. It was a wonderful source of friendship for me. And no, there are no pictures. When I left my hometown in Satellite Beach, Florida, and then went to college, to university at Auburn in Alabama, I tried out for a dance team there and danced as well uh, for several years, for my first few years as a college student, which was a lot of fun. We danced at basketball games and baseball games, and every once in a while I got to do a pregame skit with our mascot, Abby, on the sidelines of Jordan-Hare Stadium, which was a blast. Those earliest visits home, I remember feeling particularly proud to go back home, especially when I connected with that dance community with my friends who were younger than I when I went back to high school football games, for example. Because not only could I do a kickball change in a small town in Florida, but I could do one on a large campus, a large university campus. And people who knew me seemed to be proud that I was having some success elsewhere. Right? That's what we do with one another when we come back home and catch up with each other's lives. That experience of returning home. This morning, we return to the story of Jesus returning to his hometown of Nazareth. Likely being around the age of 30, he leaves his hometown for the very first time, and he goes out to begin his public ministry. He now returns home for the first time, and the people there in his hometown of Nazareth are hearing about what he has been doing and about the success and the exciting things that he has been doing somewhere else. But now he goes home. Jesus has something to share. He has something monumental to do. Remember, we saw last week when he goes home to, his, uh, to Nazareth that he goes to the synagogue and he goes to teach. And when he goes, he is given the, the privilege of reading from the prophet Isaiah. He's handed a scroll. He unrolls the scroll and he finds and reads this passage from Isaiah. 
The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolls up the scroll, sits back down, hands it back, and then adds this one sentence. It's the only original thing that he adds to the reading of the scripture. And that is that today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus quotes from the Bible and then he says, I'm the one that this passage is about. I am the one that you have been waiting for. It is a mic drop moment. Let's pick up where we left off last week as today's passage drops us right into the middle of this story. Our reading today from Luke chapter four. Then he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you do at Capernaum. And he said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts and minds, may it all be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. God, be with us this day that we would hear your gospel, your good news, and be forever changed. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Some of you... I know as I look into the faces of those of you who are here this day, some of you I am aware have created a timeline of your life as a way of getting a handle on your story, identifying key markers in your life as a way of reflecting upon what in the world God may have been doing during particular time periods of your life. It's all about discovering how God has been at work when you do some sort of spiritual timeline like that. 
I did this exercise this past fall with a, with a group of deacons. The invitation was to do the challenging work of trying to look back on the entirety of your life with wilderness in mind. The invitation was, can you recognize the work of God in your wilderness wanderings in those most disorienting and discouraging times of your life? Wilderness is a place of darkness and pain as, a way, as a well as a place where new life can emerge with awareness that suffering is a part of all of our stories. As you reflect upon your life, can you notice the times when you walked the well-worn path of pain for some of our greatest values and convictions come out of times of pain? I think if Jesus had done a timeline of his life, that this moment of returning home in the way that people responded would have been a significant marker moment in his life. The time when he went back home to the people that he knew and shared life with, who had formed him, the mentors in his life, the friends that he laughed and played with, the people who knew his mom Mary and his dad Joseph, and how at the end of his visit, they drove him out of town. Some of us know the pain of not being accepted by our family of origin or by our oldest friends. Let's examine, let's take a look at how the people respond to Jesus' shortest sermon ever in the synagogue. At first, it appears that things are going really well, doesn't it? They speak of him well and are amazed that someone from their own town could speak this way. But then as they are wondering, is this Joseph's son, which could be a moment of pride, of, of small town village pride as they recognize who this is, but it also could be the beginning of questioning who in the world of, is this from a family that is not a family of a particular status speaking such words of authority in our midst. Who is he to do such a thing? As this is going on, Jesus, sensing the, side turn, the tide turning, seems to deliberately sabotage any popularity that he had, clearly not being a people pleaser, giving them the crushing proverb, doctor, heal yourself. The turnaround in the story is jarring and pretty unbelievable. One moment the listeners are in awe of his words, the next they are ready to throw him off a cliff. Was it something that he said? Yes, it was. Jesus, the insider, becomes the outsider before our very eyes as he gives examples from the people's own scripture, reaching back, hearkening back to the Old Testament prophets of Elijah and Elisha. Let's look again at those two uh, references in this passage there in verse 25 and in verse 26. So there were many widows during a time of three and a half years when there was a severe famine over the land, a terrible time of a prolonged famine. So many people were suffering. 
But instead of helping one of the widows from Israel, Elijah is sent by God to go and care for a widow who is on the outside. And then Jesus goes on to share that during the time of Elisha, next, next verse, that there were also many leopards, lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Nahum, Naaman, the, the general of an enemy army. So many people were suffering from the terrible skin disease of leprosy, including many within the people of God, within the Hebrew family, the Israelite people, Yet the one that Elisha goes and cares for is someone who is outside the community of faith. God is unfolding new narratives in the strangest of places, in the midst of outsiders to the community of faith. For unlike Ben and Aaron Napier of the popular show Hometown on HGTV, who are devoted to restoring hometowns in their small town that they love so much, wanting to do something so special because they love their hometown of Laurel, Mississippi so very much. Jesus's mission is going to reach far beyond his own locality and its own particular interests. The wide embrace of Jesus, which causes the people of Nazareth to be furious ready to run Jesus out of town and throw him off a cliff. For all of you animated movie fans, this scene brings to mind for me the wonderful Pixar Studios movie Inside Out. The film takes us inside the head of an 11-year-old girl named Riley. We get a glimpse of Headquarters, the control center in Riley's mind and the five emotions that help advise her everyday life, the five emotions being joy and sadness, fear, disgust, and anger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All directing the behavior of young Riley who is navigating a very new and difficult thing, moving from the small town in Minnesota to the big city of San Francisco. Riley's emotions are thrown all off kilter as they struggle to cope with the disorientation of a move. Throughout the movie, you watch these characters jockey and try to take control of the control panel within Riley's control center. Disgust, for example, decides what Riley eats. Fear wakes her up in the middle of the night, and so on. When the anger character is introduced at the beginning of the movie, anger is described as the one who is making sure that all things are fair. At this point in our story, I imagine anger so busy at work at the control panel of the people in the story. Let's consider anger for a few moments because it is hard not to notice its place in this story. We all have ideas about anger, what it is, what it means, how it should be expressed, who can be angry, and why and how God feels about it that are rooted in our larger narratives. Much of this coming from our family history. 
Uncovering these key narratives can teach us much about the way that we experience and express anger in the present. Scripture does not forbid God's people from expressing anger. We do see that we are to be careful with our anger and to take responsibility for evaluating when to get angry, what to get angry about, and how to express the anger. The Bible also teaches that wise people are slow to anger. Social psychologist Carol Travis writes about the misunderstood emotion of anger. Anger, like love, has a potent possibility for both good and evil. Anger is not a disease with a single cause. It is a process, a transaction, a way of communication. Anger appears to be a symptom rather than or instead of the basic problem. What matters more is the reason that people get angry and whether they feel they can do anything about it. Andrew Lester writes in his book, Angry Christian, that our capacity for anger is one of God's good gifts rooted in creation and in serving important purposes in human life. Anger can function as an expression of love. As a fever signals that something is wrong, Anger, particularly anger that we do not understand, has something to teach us. Anger can be a source of revelation. It can be a diagnostic window, revealing that something needs to be addressed, like in our relationships with one another. The Hebrew people knew a God who could be angered. The capacity for anger is activated only as an expression of love. Jesus got angry. We can learn a lot by paying attention to what made Jesus angry. Jesus got angry at his disciples, especially Peter. Jesus got angry at political and religious leaders. Jesus threw tables when unnecessary boundaries were put between God and the people in the court of the Gentiles. A place in the temple meant for any person to come and to pray and to worship, regardless of your background. Jesus was indignant when the disciples functioning as holy bouncers try to place barriers in between Jesus and certain people who had no status, power, or influence like little children, for example. Jesus then goes on to say that it is for such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. If we are to love as Jesus loved, then we've got to be angry as Jesus was angry when the values of the gospel are violated. Friends, it should bother us that millions of children die from preventable diseases, that unregulated payday loans exploit and harm the working poor, that right now 45 million people are trapped in slavery today. 
that there are people who profit from the slave labor of children, that refugees struggle to keep from drowning in oceans. Sometimes it is a sin not to be angry. Yet sadly too often we live with paralyzing self-focus and deep apathy toward the plight of others who live daily with injustice. Scripture encourages us not to only look to our own affairs, but also to have an eye to how other people are getting along as well. It's about having more than a passing interest in someone besides yourself or your immediate family or your community of faith. It's caring about others in a way that involves our calendars and our pocketbooks too. This story concludes with Jesus slipping out of town. He passes through the crowd unharmed. The one and only miracle that the people of his hometown Nazareth will experience. But there will be no boundaries that will contain or limit what God is about to do. Once again, we are confronted with some of the most difficult parts of our faith. One being that God's ways are not our ways. He is always beyond our grasp. Surely part of the reason that the people of Nazareth got so angry is they wanted to be healed as well. They are a simple people, likely with great needs, wanting to have an encounter with God. So what do you do when God comes to you in ways that do not match your expectation? Maybe he hasn't shown his power in a way that you are longing for him to do. Maybe you feel he hasn't provided. Maybe he hasn't healed. Perhaps you don't understand why you have to carry a particular burden. Maybe someone you care about deeply is suffering. What do you do when it seems like Jesus is helping others, healing others, and not you? That's the rub of the gospel. The Jesus that we hope for and the Jesus that we get are not always in alignment. But can we trust him? Will we still follow him? Believing that he is actively present in our story and in the world in seen and unseen ways. Friends, in today's scripture, we've been paying a lot of attention to how the people responded to Jesus, but don't miss how Jesus responds himself. It's a really beautiful, important part of this story. Because it's good news for us. For Jesus does not repay rejection with rejection as we are prone to do. He knows all too well our weaknesses. He does not go looking for a special class of sinners, another different class of sinners to redeem. He doesn't abandon his mission. He doesn't call it off, but instead gives his life for his friends who drive him out of town. For love, 
bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never ends. And we who are recipients of such an extravagant love, we now get to share it with others. For God does give us the opportunity to respond. We can listen but not hear. We can be filled with wrath as those in the temple were filled with wrath that day as they listened to this wide embrace of Jesus that is wider than any of them wanted it to be and that will be so wide that it makes every single person uncomfortable at some point, including us. We can be quietly indifferent or we can follow and by following, contributing to, to God's work in the world, to God's powerful story that is coming alive on the edges of the human family and of the faith community. Friends, we are anointed and sent out to be God's people. It's what our life is about. We are anointed to do the same work that Jesus did when he was here. <clears throat> to preach good news to the poor, to be about captives being set free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. God is moving beyond our boundaries with grace. The invitation is to join him. How will you respond? Let's pray. Oh God, we confess that it can feel hard to be your people and we confess that your ways clearly are not our ways. But we affirm and declare that our hope is in you, our trust is in you as we pray together that you will expand the borders of our hearts, how we need the empowerment of the spirit of the living God to keep growing and to keep going. Send us from this place changed and new, we pray. In the gracious and powerful name of Jesus Christ, in all of God's people, together we say, amen. amen.